it can be hard to set down the things that are part of our truth. Yes. And it's not, and you know, back to your museum example, it's not that they're not there. It's not that they're not part of our truth. It's not that we're being dishonest. It's that we're choosing how to present ourselves and we get to make that choice. And I think that's empowering. I think it should be empowering. Hey, you all, Chris Miller here and welcome to the Talk to People podcast. If this is your first time, let me quickly say that this whole entire podcast centers around one thing, and that is the importance and power of social connection. I firmly believe that your life is better when you live it with quality relationships, and the more social connection you have in your life will lead to living a fuller life that's more resilient to stress. Each episode I release features a new conversation, and the conversation you're about to see is with Jared Otten. He is the Crisis Line Director for Headquarters Kansas, and he's incredibly knowledgeable with a lot of the things I'm passionate about. And in Jared's day-to-day life, he works closely with crisis and suicide prevention. What do you say to people in times of need? What do you say to people when stress is at an all-time high or when it feels like the stakes couldn't be any higher? It's also a pretty heavy topic. So if you have someone that you've lost in your life to suicide, I just wanna let you know we talk about that. We talk about how important it is to be direct. And if someone is contemplating suicide, to ask them directly, because oftentimes many people are scared of that, but that's what they need in that moment. This episode really transformed my perspective on a suicide prevention hotline. Initially, I thought it was a really scary thing, but now I recognize is if someone reaches out to the hotline, that's a great thing. That means that they're wanting to talk to somebody about it. And this whole podcast is about talking to people. If you quickly could subscribe to the YouTube, even if you're watching, go on YouTube, find the Talk to People podcast, subscribe to that. Comment below something that sticks out to you. These conversations are meant to be fun, but they're also meant to be informative. So comment below and then like, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening. I'm grateful you're here. And without further ado, Jared Otten, you are officially live the Talk to People podcast dining room studio. Love it. Mr. Jared Otten, for those who don't know, what do you do? I work at headquarters Kansas and we are a 988 contact center. So the 988 suicide and crisis lifeline. And then we're um, engaged in suicide prevention um, and intervention. And we do policy and advocacy work. Um, And we've been an organization in Lawrence for almost 54 years um, and yeah, we're, we're a community of volunteers, staff, donors. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a agency that I've been connected to since 2013, which is when I became a volunteer counselor. And that kind of kicked off my, you know, involvement in suicide prevention. So, so Katie Richard, shout out to her. She was a friend of, or she is a friend of mine, but she reached out to me and sent me this picture. So she works with the agency and the agency at the time was having a seminar about belonging and the power of community and people, but they were doing it in response to suicide prevention. And it made me think about how important it is to have people in your life whenever you are one navigating a crisis But two, when you're talking to people on a suicide hotline, because I imagine you're asking questions and you're listening deeply. And one of the things 
maybe that you ask is, talk to me about the people in your life. Do you have those people? So I began thinking about this and it was, ooh, I wanna talk to somebody who knows this world. And then I reach out to one person and then before you know it, we're getting coffee. So I'm really grateful that you lend your experience and your wisdom about some of this because I think about it. Because I, I imagine it being a bit nerve wracking for someone who's taking a call like that. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's an experience. Like your first call, I think, you know, everyone can kind of remember their their first call after they, they go through training, which is a long process. It's like an eight week, nine week long process. And then you're, you know, kind of thrown into the, into the dip, the depth, not without support and not without a, a lot of practice, but, um, yeah, it's, it's anxiety provoking. I can definitely remember my first call. Um, and I remember the, the things that didn't go well about it or, you know, the, the struggles I had and then the, the reflections I had afterwards feeling like, Oh, I didn't do enough or, you know, this, this didn't go how I expected it. Um, and, we deal with that a lot. We deal with that kind of uh, questioning a lot as um, caregivers or supportive people, right? So, yeah, it's 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 definitely tough work because those conversations are not ones that we're accustomed to having in our mm-hmm. everyday lives. And you may stress yourself out because with sales, if you don't sell the person AT and T, they're going to go to Verizon. They may get T Mobile. I know around here, I get calls from. Midco and oh we got AT&T fiber but for that line of work you may stress yourself out thinking if I am not able to communicate or listen to them or perform well on this call they may take their own life yeah I think that pressure is something that a lot of people have especially before the people who want to become a volunteer or um, participate in our, our training are there because they want to help. Um, and they have an idea of what that helping looks like before they ever get started. And usually that idea shifts over time, um, as they, um, kind of learn, learn about our approach or our philosophy for, for helping. Um, they learn about the skills obviously. Um, but to a large degree, you have to adopt, um, you have to adopt a mentality of like being invested, but not all the way. And that's, it's, I, I want to nuance that a little bit, I guess. Um, like we obviously want to show up. We want to care and be very present in the moment at the end of, at the end of the day. And this is a reminder that we have to remind ourselves routinely is you, you can only do so much. So you can, you can only, um, you're doing what you can to the best of your abilities at any given time. Um, the person who reaches, reaches out, um, you know, they reached out, which indicates that there is a part of them that wants to stay safe or wants to, to get help, make a change, whatever it is. Um, but you can't make that change for them and you can't act on their behalf and their choices are their choices. Um, and we have to grapple with that routinely. And, and, you know, sometimes with, each interaction that we're having. So it's some mental gymnastics and it takes a lot of support. It takes a system of support. Um, like, yeah, you can't invest yourself completely because then if you did, you wouldn't be able to invest in the other people. And yeah, that is a nuanced subject. Yeah. And you know, you, you don't want to over, 
over-invest, over-identify. And this is something kind of relating back to my own personal experience or my own grief experience and journey working in suicide prevention. It's like there was a time where I over-identified with my loss. Like it was the only, it was the most interesting thing about me. And, uh, you know, like um, it served me because it connected me to a community of people through headquarters. And, and since then through it connected me to other communities, yet I was placing it at the center of my world or at the center of my identity. And it was no longer serving me. It was becoming something that was, too too heavy or too you know always thinking with that kind of leading um and since then or you know at some point i realized i gotta create some separation from this thing that i've been focusing so much on um you know it's served me it's given me meaning it's given me purpose but i'm doing too much of it and it's like the this idea of balance i think is something that i uh, use on a regular basis to try to check myself yeah with meaning making so tragedy happens and we make meaning of it i know the phrase oh it's god's plan or oh there's a reason why or you don't know yet but just wait and that's a brilliant thing about human beings is we are able to make meaning of things i know that with communication the whole premise of it is you have a sender and you have a receiver and then in between you have a ton of noise. So I may ask you a question about earthquakes. And to me, it's a fun question about natural disasters, but you may have just lost your best friend in an earthquake and all of that psychological noise will change the way that you answer. And we may have someone who's really loud speaking next to us or the car may be shaking because the rotator belts off and we're a little stressed out. So we answer differently. So there's all this noise, but in between we get the process of creating shared meaning through our communication, but the individual being able to make meaning of life is a superpower of ours. I think so. And I mean, I think the, the, in my experience, the primary method of meaning making is storytelling And I don't mean like, you know, fancy storytelling. I just mean like sharing, you know, bits about yourself. And and that didn't always come easy, I think, for me. And, you know, I don't think that there was an opportunity for me to share my story, or at least I didn't take the opportunity to share my story in its entirety until I went through volunteer training, right? And it was, you know, the the conditions were right for me. You know, there was a space that was created that felt safe enough to share. I saw it modeled um, by the people around me. You know, I could trust that that space, and that was conducive to to my sharing. And so, you know, whether it's that space or it's therapy or it's sharing with a trusted friend, right? It doesn't necessarily matter, but there's there has to be some form of sharing storytelling in order to make meaning of it, because you have to like externalize it. And this is just me, like. I don't mean this for everyone. This Mm -hmm. has just been my experience, but externalizing it allows you to look at it, consider it and think about your next move. I agree. And my past year has been crazy. And just this morning I met with someone, we got coffee and the story I told them is different than the story I told someone six months ago. 
And it's not because a lot of things have changed, but it's instead how I'm talking about that story. And it gives me more agency. Sometimes I think we get bored with our, the narrative that we're telling ourselves, which isn't a bad thing. It's like, you know, what is, you, you know, you can shape the narrative that you have for yourself. Um, you can change the characters in it or change the characters you're portraying. Um, and that's a pretty powerful thing to consider. You can change your relationship to the, the event just, you know, I, I, this might sound flippant, but just by choosing to do so. And I know it's not always an easy choice to make, or, you know, it takes people a lot of work to, to get to that place. But, um, when you do it, then you get to kind of see what, what the results are. You get to see how, how it evolved, which is exciting. So what does a typical call look like? Typically someone's reaching out um, at or before that moment where things are spilling over. You know, when someone's thinking about suicide, it takes a lot of strength for someone to reach out. And so there might be some shame, um, some, some guilt, feeling like a burden. I think these are common things we hear from callers and things you can imagine. You know, if you're, if you're in a place where you are very vulnerable and you, the only support you feel like you can reach out to is a crisis line and you're talking to a stranger, you know, what does it take to get to that point? Um, and not that there's anything wrong with talking to a stranger. I think it's awesome. Right. Um, but I know that it takes some, some vulnerability, some strength to get to that point. So it's a really beautiful thing to kind of, to witness it's also intense, right? You know, cause whatever someone's going through is now being thrown at you. You know, um, you're trying to understand a complex situation, um, complex feelings. Um, ultimately our goal is, you know, not to, again, not to, to, to take power over that person or their, their situation, but to allow them to understand their options, understand, their situation, where they fit within it uh, to make choices. You know, we obviously fall on the side of like, we want people to make healthy choices. We want people to make safe choices. We have that bias. We operate with that bias. Um, but the call just unfolds how it unfolds. You know, someone gets, gets the opportunity to talk, uh, someone there to listen and be present with them. And hopefully it gets to a point of, you know, identifying what steps they can take to stay safe identifying who they can reach out to, who their support people are, um, and, you know, taking some steps to be safe for now Mm -hmm. may not be safe forever. And that's not ultimately what, what people are asked to, to do or, you know, encouraged to do. Um, it's very much moment to moment. And that's how a crisis plays out is one foot in front of the other. At the beginning I think of a 911 call and it may be much different, but I think whenever you call 911, it's always, where are you? What's your location? Are you in danger? Da, mm-hmm. da, da, da. So we, we, you'll hear us say, hello, headquarters counseling center. And then the person says, Hey, can I talk? Yeah. What's going on? What's going on is a, a question you'll hear dozens of hundreds of times a day. Um, and that's, it's really just to get people, sharing from whatever place or perspective they feel comfortable at whatever level they feel comfortable. 
What a cool question. What's going on? You know, <laughs> what's going on? I say, yeah, I, I mean, I say it all the time. You know? It's, it's a great platform and it's funny how simple that is because we will overthink one of the questions I was thinking about asking guests whenever they come on is what's your favorite question to ask people? That question right there, what's going on is perfect. Cause it, then it's like, all right, balls in your court, take it however you want. Just share. Yeah. It can be hard. I mean, it can be hard to know where to start for a lot of people. Sometimes people need a little bit of guidance and that's okay. And we can step in and provide that, especially when someone's reaching out for the first time or you you don't always have a script for how this should unfold. I think communication and conversation, we have like these, these, I'll just use the word script, but maybe there's a better word, but like, you know, you know how a visit to the doctor's office goes, you know, you know, what your interaction is going to be like with the person at the front desk and your doctor and you kind of play through that, whether you do it consciously or unconsciously. So if you don't have an idea of how this, how should I receive this support, then it's, it can be really uncomfortable and difficult to engage in the process. Hmm. I think it's why a lot of people struggle with therapy the first time they go. I struggled with therapy the first time I go, partially because my mom like tricked me into going when I was 14. So that, you know, my first experience was not a positive experience. And then I ended up being a social worker who, you know, provides support to people. But um, traditional therapy for me has not been something that I've had a lot of comfort with. And part of that's probably because of my experiences or because, um, you know, it hasn't happened on terms that felt comfortable, felt safe. I didn't have an idea of how, how it should go. You know, how do you position that narrative in your head? Because it's poetic. Mm. The fact that, you at one point were a young teenager who lost your father by suicide. And then now you're a community leader involved in suicide prevention. I, I guess I feel conflicted because um, part of my job, I guess, is to like, you know, um, practice what we preach. You know, if, if what we preach is um, seeking support, you know, accessing mental health you know, part of my job is to like you know, walk the walk. Right. And I'm someone who's like not had a lot of positive experience. I've had some positive experiences with, you know, formal mental health care, but my path feels a little bit different, you know, and, and, it, and that's okay. So I guess I've had to kind of reckon with that. Um, and I've felt a little bit like, you know, I'm not, um, fully bought into the things that I'm saying at the same time. It, to me, it kind of comes back to meaning making. And so someone can make meaning in a therapy session. Um, and that can be a really productive form of support. For me, it's looked a little bit different because it's been, it's been through my work with headquarters or it's been through, um, I'm, I'm sure at some point I'll talk about Camp Kita, but it's another community of uh, suicide loss survivors. And so that's connected me to other people allowed me to do the things that I think are basic, which is sharing your story, right? Balancing all of that, navigating all of that is hard. And I, I mean, if you're like me, like the, I put a pressure on myself to understand it all, you know, I don't think we can understand it all, you know, so just understand a little bit, learn a little bit, um, stay curious. That's something that it's a lot of the work that we do is, 
being curious about people's lives, you know, what's going on for them, centering them, centering their experience and their story and trying to keep ourselves, you know, out of it, not, not to depersonalize overly, but when someone reaches out, it's about them. It's not about us. It's not about how we feel providing support or help. It's about them and their experience. And so we work really hard to center them and to center their voice. Do you encourage reciprocity sometimes? If someone asks, for instance, if I'm asking you a question and you're like, what about you? Mm -hmm. And you ask me, do you ever do that on the phone? Like disclose a little bit about you. I think the role of self-disclosure is interesting and every person's different with their comfort. Every counselor would be different with their comfort. And then the appropriateness of sharing, um, is really nuanced. So when you're approached with the decision about whether or not to share something personal about yourself, um, the question you should be asking yourself is, does this, you know, you're still disclosing with the person in mind, you know, am I sharing this only for my satisfaction? It's like, if, you know, if, if I just want to talk about myself, this isn't the appropriate space to do it. I need to find another space to do that. But if this, if this can provide this person with a connection, if this can build rapport, if this can improve their engagement, then it might be appropriate. So there's no like hard and fast rule about self-disclosure. And I think therapists encounter this a lot in practice too. It's, you know, I'm not just a, you know, a shell of a person, right? I have my own experiences, struggles, and in some cases that can be brought into or should be brought into the the work that you're doing with a person in a crisis situation. It's complex too, because you don't, you can't see the person you don't, you know, you want to be thoughtful about safety and, you know, people's motives. Even in our work, there's, you know, folks who reach out um, who may have, you know, for nefarious is kind of a strong term, but you know, th- their motives might not be pure. Uh, that's a nature of the work. You know, we, people have the option of, of being anonymous, which is really important to access. And it can be something that's, uh, unfortunately abused. Um, not mm-hmm. to, not to dwell on that, but you know, it's, it's just a part of the work too. And, and people can express things, um, that they wouldn't express in other spaces because they have anonymity. We see that a lot with social media or like having an anonymous web presence, right? It allows you to say and do things that you might not say and do. So to some degree, we have to be a space where it's okay. Like it's not okay to, you know, say something that's hateful, abusive, like we're going to limit that. Right. But, um, if we step back and kind of like remove some of our feelings about it, it's like, what, what need is that person expressing? They might be expressing the need to you know, talk about uh, whatever frustration, um, we might have opinions about that, but a lot of times we need to set our opinions on the back burner in order to provide support to someone. Like I said, not, not without limit, but, but it's rapid self-disclosure. Yeah. Anonymity and then crisis. And also whenever someone asks you what's going on. Yeah. All right, here we go. Yep. And listening to that, I remember with therapy for me, one of the hardest parts was I studied communication undergrad graduate school after graduate school, I go to therapy for the first time. And one of the things I learned a lot about was 
conversational turn-taking. Like a tennis match. (laughs) Like a tennis match. And that was something that I really liked. And then I also liked this idea of, there's this theory called social penetration theory, which is a weird sounding theory. I always thought of it as the onion theory Mm -hmm. because different people have different layers and it takes a while to get to the core. And some people disclose very differently. I had someone on who was from Miami and he said in Miami, you could talk to someone for one night and you know everything about them. But y'all aren't really that tight. That's just self-disclosure. But then in the Midwest, you could be friends for 10 years and not know anything about them, but they'll be cool to you. They'll have you over all this stuff. So like self-disclosure is very different. And the whole theory says, as we get to know people, we peel back different layers and everybody has different layers. Like you may be comfortable talking about your family and it may take me a long time or finances, money, whatever that looks like. But then as we put back the layers, in order to peel back the layers, you have to have self-disclosure, reciprocity, um, longevity. So over a long period of time. And then there was one more thing. Uh, But I remember reciprocity being so big. So whenever I went to therapy, I'd want to be like, what about you? Hmm. (laughs) Right? But that's not how it works. Yeah. It's very one-sided. Yeah. Which can be off-putting, which I think is part of the reason some people may struggle to connect in a therapeutic setting is because you're not, yeah, I I think you're spot on because someone, someone may not get that need met. And then the question becomes, well, you know, is there something wrong with me that like therapy doesn't work? Um, or therapy is a crock of, um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I can cuss on your podcast. No, you totally can. Uh, I I don't want to interrupt you, but I also want to say I had to change my perspective about therapy to go from, okay, I'm not going to get reciprocity from this guy. So because of that, I'm just going to spill. And I guess that's the goal, right? Is to go in there. And I remember my friend, he told me, hey, that thing you don't want to talk about, go for it. Mm. And that was, that's also really hard for the therapist is they sit down with people that may be business leaders or nonprofit leaders or government officials or teachers or whatever job you're in. And anytime you'd interact with that person, 96 hours out of the, I don't know how many hours we get, 168, something like that, we would get a certain person, but then one hour a week for therapy, it's way different. And that's the person that you interact with as as a therapist because that person's coming to you for therapy and they're spilling like crazy. There's a reason I'm not a therapist and I, um, cause that's hard. It's hard work. I don't, I don't claim to be an expert on any particular modality or anything like that. There are people who are really, really good and skilled in that role. And especially in this community. Um, and it's really tough and challenging work. Um, it's an art, um, communications and art and the support that we provide it is not therapy it, while it's therapeutic. It's, it's just an entry point into sharing about yourself, about your struggle or about, you know, what you're proud of. Um, yeah. And that's, that's another point. Like, you know, some of the conversations we have, people are sharing intimate details about their lives, things that they're scared to tell other people, you know, maybe they're coming out and the, they've never told anyone. Right. 
Um, and now they're telling a stranger. Um, that's a really cool opportunity to be witness to someone's vulnerability. Um, and that's, that's something that, you know, people who are therapists get to experience on a routine basis. And I think most, you know, see that as a gift. Um, and like I said, there's just, it's, it's a science, it's, it's an art. Um, and we have our own kind of at headquarters, our own approach or, or, or way of packaging these communication skills. Oh, I'm fascinated by that. Could you share a little bit about that? The training that we provide is essentially um, active listening training. It's, um, you know, we, we obviously focus in on suicide intervention, um, but the bulk of what we do is active listening. And what that means is being present, you know, using things like reflections, reflection statements to elicit further conversation or further sharing so that a person, as I mentioned earlier, can understand their situation on their own terms, understand their options on their own terms. Um, and we just want to further that process. What's an example of reflection statement? So we, we use some jargon, um, but it's a feeling reflection. So a feeling reflection is I can hear that you're feeling really frustrated. And then we might modify that a feeling reflection with the source. I can hear you're feeling really frustrated because your sister hasn't returned your call. And then we'll use things like value reflections. I can, I can hear that your sister is really important to you. She seems like someone who, who really cares. We're elevating the, the feeling words that people use or, or honing in on them. Um, we're bringing, we're also elevating the, the values that a person talks about, whether explicitly or implicitly, sometimes just the topic of conversation a person chooses to focus on can imply a value values can be tangible your sister you know your finances your dog or they can be intangible things like safety we have a lot of things that are important to us that that we talk about that we may not be aware of and so by examining your values you can better understand how you want to act or how what steps you want to take i think about it conversational curating Mm. with the museum curator when you go to a museum you have or an art gallery all of these potential or all of these paintings on the wall and they're so beautiful and the curator knows everything about them and you get to walk you go through the tour and oh wow look at that look at that look at that but what we don't think about is in the back there's so many more paintings that aren't on the wall but the museum host or founder gets to choose what to put up and that's what gets seen that's what gets talked about that's what gets critiqued or praised and in conversations we have the ability to do that like with this podcast you and i we can start talking about being outdoors and spend the whole entire time talking about being outdoors because i know that's something that you love and it's something i love and we could go on and talk about it but we're putting that on the wall and we're not putting other things on the wall so it is interesting hearing like why do you keep talking about that yeah like in therapy i think my therapist asked me that question why is it that you you come in and you feel the need to talk about that certain thing Mm -hmm. well uh, yeah that's that's an interesting insight or i I like the music the museum curator example because like back to my earlier point about over identifying with my loss that was the thing i was putting on the walls right um and and it stopped It, it was no longer I'll just say it was no longer interesting to me 
um, or it was causing me pain, discomfort, um, whatever. And so I had to take it down and put something else up. So that I know that's a helpful way of, I think, framing it and what you choose to put up there is also, um, yeah, what you're going to talk about. You're going to talk about the things that are on the wall. Yeah. And that's what you're going to get criticism about. That's where you're going to get praise about. They're going to say, wow, that must've been so hard mm-hmm. or, Oh, that sucks. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't imagine that. But whenever you take it down and you put something else up, it's still in the museum, you know, it's still chilling back there. And if you ever need to, you can go back and you can look at it or you can say, Hey, we're going to do an art shift. We're going to do a change. Like at the Spencer museum, I know that it's a whole career figuring out what goes where and what you're going to do in this season and that season and working with specific artists to broadcast their work. And I think with us too, that's what life is like is whenever we choose our identity, whenever we choose what we lead with, we're putting whatever we're putting on the wall and we can over identify with things and our identity changes, Mm -hmm. which is bonkers to think about. And there's nothing wrong with not presenting certain identities first. Right. And I think sometimes people might feel a sense of shame or guilt about not showing up with that identity first. Like I, I think obviously I, I come from a lot of privilege. So my identities, um, I, I have to, to take a step back from some of my identities or consider how those are, are playing out in a lot of spaces. But for my, my identity as a suicide loss survivor, um, I think sometimes it's just not, relevant to mention yeah yeah like why why do i have to lead with that or is it you know the question i ask which i've mentioned is um is it serving me does it serve me to to lead with this identity i had a recent experience where i um was asked to participate on a um a panel of suicide loss survivors or people with experiences related to suicide and it was just a couple weeks ago and i was dreading it i was like actively vocalizing that I was not looking forward to it, that, you know, I questioned the utility of some of those types of panel experiences, but really like what it boiled down to is that I have over the years come up with a way to present my story to like, I've, I've put it into a script that I can just regurgitate, but I'm not really connecting with it. And I can do the song and dance for this lived experience panel. And I know that it will produce you know, the intended outcome, but that doesn't serve me. It just feels like I'm exploiting my own experience or that potentially someone else is exploiting my own experience. And that doesn't feel good either way. And so I had to choose how I was going to relate to it. You know, was I going to do the kind of the same old song and dance or was I going to try to get something out of it for myself so that I didn't feel so icky as a result. And, um, you know, I chose kind of the, the latter. I was, I, I showed up more authentically and, and like, while I went into that experience thinking I wasn't going to get anything out of it because I chose to show up authentically leading with a few other identities. Um, it was more productive for me. It moved me to a place. It, it allowed me to have, um, a meaningful experience. I cried after, right? Like these were things that I wasn't expecting to happen, um, that I was kind of bitter about. Um, but I, I chose to be a little bit more authentic, but that's tough. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to 
lay it all out there all the time. I don't think that's, you know, there's even that pressure. And I, I experience that within my agency and within some of the communities I'm in. It's like, there can be a pressure to be vulnerable all the time, but don't, you know, you don't want that to come at a cost. So good. To your own well-being, um, even if it's what's being modeled around you. So I don't know, it's, which is a weird thing. Cause it's like, on the one hand, like walking around out in society, no one's being vulnerable. They're all presenting a facade. And then on the other extreme, you might fall into spaces where you have to confront it all the time. You never get a chance to set it down. And I think that's back to balance, right? You got to figure out when you're going to focus on these identities or these things about yourself. And when you're just going to be whatever person, you know, you're just, you're just going to do things that you, that give you pleasure that you enjoy that fill you up. Mm -hmm. I wrestled with that a lot. What really helped me was Brene Brown. Yeah. She talked about vulnerability has to be paired with wisdom. And I hadn't thought about how you need to be wise about self-disclosure. But then the more I recognized relationships that I wasn't crazy about were relationships where I felt like we didn't have enough skin in the game for you to disclose what you just disclosed. Mm. And then, or like every time we get together, the reciprocity isn't there. Or I... I disclosed something to you, but now I feel really bad about it. There wasn't the wisdom and self-disclosure. So whenever I was reading about that, I'm like, you know what? It's okay for me not to be vulnerable to the depths of my experience with someone I just met. You know, like we need to have that wisdom. Yeah. I mean, we kicked open this podcast talking about my suicide loss, um, but we didn't do so without having a conversation first. Like I wouldn't have led with that if I didn't feel comfortable with you. And I think um, that's kind of the assessment people should make, you know, is like, is this a person I can trust with Mm -hmm. a part of me that um, feels raw? With your active listening, one thing that really stuck out to me was you were talking about like pressing on uncertainty or questioning uncertainty like whenever someone calls in, they're like, oh, I'm not sure. I don't, I've been thinking about suicide, but I'm not sure. And then asking these questions, well, what's making you uncertain? Yeah. We, we um, teach about the concept of ambivalence or uncertainty um, related to suicide. So one thing that's, really common for people who struggle with suicidal thoughts is like having one foot in both worlds. There's a part of you that wants to die. And then there's a part of you that wants to live or feels a sense of, you know, what if, or whatever that looks like for the individual. Um, and when someone reaches out, that's, um, it's really clear Like for a lot of people they're they're, they wouldn't think that someone who's calling the, crisis line is uncertain. They think, whoa, this person's really determined to kill themselves. That's the stereotype. Yeah. But they've also reached out. So that's, you know, cue number one, that there's some uncertainty there. There's pause They're They're seeking help. So we try to bring that into the conversation. And so, you know, sometimes it sounds like, you know, I know that you reached out today and you're feeling really hopeless. I also know 
that you picked up the phone to call today. And that tells me that there's a part of you that wants to stay safe. And suicide's a very, very real option for you. So I want to talk about, you know, the part of you that does want to die. What's been going on that's gotten you to that point. And we intentionally focus on the part of them that wants to die first. Because if we just jump right to, tell me about all the reasons you want to live, right? That, that can feel really invalidating and is not going to be productive for most people. That's kind of the response that many people get from uh, loved ones, you know, family members, friends. You share that you're thinking about suicide, and the first thing that pops into someone's mind is, what about everything you have to live for? You know, what about your parents? What about your, your kids, etc.? If you go straight to that, it can just further kind of the distance that people, it can further the isolation. Like, you know, not only am I thinking about suicide, but it's totally seen as invalid. And we come from a place of like, suicide's a valid option for, for a lot of people. It's, it's valid that they consider suicide. We can understand, we can empathize with a person and under, because we spend time thinking about reflecting on what gets a person to thinking about suicide, we can understand how it makes sense in that person's mind, in that, in that current state, that it's seen as an option to end the pain that they're experiencing. Mm. And they've reached out. So that's an opportunity. Yeah, because whenever I talked to you, one of the things I led with was, man, what a tough job. It must be such a, in my head, I'm thinking a dark place. You talk to people on the phone about suicide and con- convincing them or getting them to not do it. And you just talking to you for that brief moment really reframed my brain about it because you're right though. Them calling in is such a great thing. We are so grateful that you called in because if you have something to share and you don't have the opportunity to share it, we're here for you. And we would love to hear about what's going on but we also want you to know it's a big deal that you made the call. So like you reframing that for me was really helpful. And I think that's going to be a big benefit of like people listening to this. I think that it's a transformative concept. And I think one of the concepts that helped me understand my loss, it helped me form a healthier relationship with my loss. Cause for a lot of people who lose someone to suicide, especially when they lose a parent, they're angry and they have to reconcile with this anger and sadness that they feel like not only have I lost, you know, the person who I love, but I also hate them for what they did. Why did they leave me is the question children ask themselves um, or anyone asks themselves. But yeah, you know, of course we can never know what, you know, if, if anyone's lost someone to suicide, we can, we can never know what that person was thinking at that time, but we can, if we know that, suicide was seen as a option for ending their pain, then I think we can empathize with it. I think that we can relate to it differently. We can set down some of the anger and hopefully understand a little bit better. Because mm-hmm. that dissonance is got to be crushing to have the moments where you see your kid and you think of all of the life and wow, look at this beautiful kid. But then you have moments where you think about, I'm hopeless. There's no other option for me. 
So being able to call in and the person validating that feeling has to be incredibly validating. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause no one often, no one in your life is saying to you, I get why you're thinking about suicide. It makes sense based on what you've told me. And you know, you've reached out and that tells me there's a part of you that wants to stay safe. And, you know, maybe it's not safety forever, but what if we took some time to just explore that uncertainty that you're feeling um, and, you know, see what, see what the results are. So part of what we do is just provide people with time and space to consider the uncertainty that they're feeling. And then hopefully that gives them some more time to consider their options. At the end of the day, they can choose to kill themselves. And that is something that we don't have the power to change, but they're reaching out. You don't have the ability to remove their capability of yeah. killing themselves. Right. Yet you do have an opportunity to move the needle, yeah. which is really cool. And that could probably be where the pressure comes into. So value reflections, feeling reflections. Mm -hmm. Those are two things about active listening. What else? I think you and I talked about minimal encouragers, you know, the, the sounds you make when you, when you nod, mm -hmm, right. You know, we, we use these kind of like little nuanced, um, communication to keep conversation going to, um, we're really thoughtful too about the questions we ask. We try not to ask too many questions. You know, it's, um, we try to keep a, a balance of reflections to questions. We want to weigh heavier on the number of reflections that we're, we're using, why is that? Because questions can sometimes be um, misguiding or too guiding, right? This, there's this idea of like the level of guidance that we use in a conversation varies depending on, depending on what the person needs. And so if, sometimes a person is going to need more guidance, like I mentioned earlier, because they haven't done this before. So we can, we can, we can guide them along by asking more questions. Uh, other times a person doesn't need our questions because they just get in the way of their process. So um, you have to kind of dial that up or down based on what a person needs and try to keep your questions open so that they open up doors for exploration as opposed to your closed-ended questions, which you're just going to get a short response. Um, sometimes we have to lean more heavily on questions to for engagement because we're not hearing a lot from the person because they're... Um, they have some hesitation or they're resistant to, to talking, but they, but they're still there. Um, so we try to build rapport a little bit through questions, um, but really thoughtful and tactful, full tactful questions. And then there's, there's some more, I guess, clinical skills that we use, you know, that we try to, um, you know, we try to safety plan with people and that sounds kind of formal, but it's really just, people knowing what steps they can take to prioritize their safety after the call ends. You know, it's, it's likely that suicidal thoughts are going to return for a person. So what are you going to do when that happens? Um, given that you are uncertain, given that you do want to stay safe for now, that you have been able to identify some reasons for living, what do you want to do for yourself to, to stay safe? So sometimes that looks like just verbally going through like, okay, here's my warning signs. Here's the things that I know about myself that indicates I'm not doing well. Um, here's the things I can do to either distract myself or cope. 
here's the people I can reach out to, you know, you've just had a good, uh, hopefully you've had a positive experience reaching out to the lifeline. You can do that again. You know, here's, here's an additional support in your, your system that wasn't there before. Um, or here's a person I can give my gun. Here's a person I can pass off my medications to like talking about access to lethal means is something that's really important. Um, especially related to firearms. So all that kind of gets wrapped up into the conversation that we hope is collaborative, that we hope is person centered. Um, so that a person's driving their own car and ship and like, we're not, we're not doing too much leading. It's a lot of stuff that people would feel scared to ask. Yeah. And whenever I was an RA, I did some training and I remember one of the things I gathered was ask the scary stuff, mm-hmm. sometimes even lead with it. And I wasn't as trained as you are or didn't go through the process that you direct other people through, but asking that scary stuff of, oh, so where is your gun? You know, you have a gun, right? I know you've talked to me about it. If you're, if I'm talking, I, I, I know of like a situation where a friend had a gun and then had suicidal thoughts. So it's like, okay, you know, that's in a similar ballpark. Let's talk about that, right? Mm-hmm. Da, 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 da. Where, where's the gun? Do you have ammo? Things like that, questions that I think a lot of people are scared to ask, but access to lethal means. Yeah. The And along the lines of asking direct questions, we, you know, train people to ask directly about suicide. And that's something that can be a big hurdle for a lot of people. Uh, they might hold some myths, um, that asking about suicide puts the idea in someone's head. That's a common one out there. Um, you know, what we know is that it's incredibly protective to ask directly because it opens up a door. Uh, it sends the message to the person that you're a safe person to talk about suicide with, that you're confident talking about suicide, whether you're freaking out on the inside or not. It, it, it doesn't so much matter as long as you ask directly and, and then really understand that, okay, suicide is what we're talking about. Let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. Uh, Cause that's the most important thing right now, your safety and the fact that you're thinking about suicide. So saying the words clearly, are you thinking about suicide is a perfectly okay, encouraged, protective thing to do. And it communicates you're willing to go there. Yeah. I'm willing to go there. Let's talk about it. Yep. You've been alone with these thoughts so much and you're so nervous that nobody else will talk to you about them. But I am willing to go there. Being direct in this moment is being kind and it is being smart, you know, like let, let's be direct about that. You mentioned the one thing you're talking about how questions can be guiding. And I have such a hard time with that with podcasting mm-hmm. because we can take this anywhere and knowing what questions to ask, cause you're totally right. I just recently started prompting people rather than asking questions. So sharing something and not even making it a question, just stop talking. <laughs> And I I don't know why it took me so long to figure that out, but it helps me because they can either respond to what I just said, or they can go back to what they were saying. Right. But whenever I ask a question, it really does. It'd be like an author writing a book and they have a really good chapter. And then I come in and I say, all right, second chapter. (laughs) It's like, whoa, I need you to wrap it up. Yeah. I had such we were just getting started. So knowing those questions to ask has been really hard for me. Yeah. Conversations are connections, you know, a suicide 
intervention is a conversation, right? It's, it's establishing a connection. And I think it's natural for people to bounce off of each other. So, you know, everyone has friends where it's like, you know, you get together and you're sharing stories or, you know, you're just bouncing off of each other and it feels really natural. It feels really um, like things are clicking along. And then everyone has friends where it's like, you know, it's hard to converse, you know, it's hard to, uh, cause things aren't clicking. Um, that's okay too. I mean, it's okay to be around people who you don't, your primary form of connection is not conversational based, but it might be activity based or, you know, I have lots of people mm-hmm. in my life who it's, we're connecting around an activity as opposed to, you know, maybe a shared topic or of interest or a shared um, set of values. Right. It's, it can be different, but you're into soccer, right? You're connecting with people. You're not, you're not communicating with them when you go out on the field, you know, a little bit, but you're playing a game, nothing big. And it's funny. People will laugh because sometimes they'll be like, Hey, how was your weekend? And they'll be like, dude, we're playing soccer. (laughs) Get out of here with that. Yeah. Get out of here with that. Or they'll be like, good. I'm like, yeah, what happened? You know? And they'll be like, stop. And one thing that's been helpful for me, I learned it whenever I was an RA. My first year as an RA, I tried to be everybody's best friend. Yeah. All of my residents. Be like, oh, hey, this is Jake from Chinook, Kansas. This is Chris from Kenosha, Wisconsin. This is John from Omaha, Nebraska. And I studied everybody, like the roster of a sports team and knew their class schedule and everything. And I got so disappointed because they all didn't want to be my best friend. Yeah. I was like, what? And learning... They have that connection present. They have it. And you need to be grateful for it. And with soccer, what I recognize is I won't be able to connect with everybody. And knowing that is so freeing. Knowing that I value that social connection, so I'm going to try and connect with people. But everybody that shows up, I'm not going to be able to connect with them all. So it's been really helpful because recently people have approached me about doing social events. Mm. And I'm like, perfect. I'm really excited to attend. Let me know when you plan it. (laughs) That helps out, right? Because then other people are planning things and then I just show up as a participant rather than as organizer or commissioner. And it gives me, it removes pressure from me. And then it helps me realize like, Hey, I don't have to ask open-ended questions to all 30 of these guys. Yeah. I could just show up, not talk play soccer that's yeah yeah i think for people who i I mean all of us crave connection like we all need a sense of belonging and i think sometimes it can feel like you're missing opportunities if you're not putting all the effort into connecting with someone you know understanding them but that's also exhausting it's super and i will have fomo for people yeah whenever i show up to a big event um okay yeah yeah okay jared i talked to you and then i'll see someone be like oh man i haven't talked to him and i'm like oh what if this person blank blank and blank blank and blank blank and it's not really helpful for me yeah yeah i went to an event last night and there was one guy who i didn't really talk to and due to that he was mysterious so i was in one conversation i was thinking oh i should talk to that person Mm -hmm. i ended up never talking to him and focusing on this conversation it worked out really well but it's funny how I'll get FOMO with social interactions. I bet introverts cannot relate. <laughs> right. No, I get it though. I, I, I similarly feel like uh, you want to get as much as you can 
from the people around you. I recently came back from Camp Kita, which is a camp for kids who have lost a loved one to suicide. And while I'm there, I'm the like the 24-7 emotional first aid. Mm. That's that's my job. Um, and I have a couple coworkers who, um, who are also in that position. And uh, we have a really unique job that we just kind of roam around uh, the summer camp, which is a traditional summer camp paired with group therapy. Um, and these, the, you know, all these kids are connected by their shared experience. Right. And our job is to, to be available around the clock for whatever emotional needs come up. And so we can be very busy, but also, you know, as the week progresses, as these people establish, these young people establish connections with each other, they start to fill that need for themselves. So, you know, a kid has an experience, they, they, you know, whether it's playing soccer or, um, in group, you know, maybe, maybe there's something that they're working through. They're crying, they're, you know, taking a moment for themselves. I have a choice, you know, I can, I can go intervene. I can go insert myself into that person's experience. But more often than not, what we see is someone else, you know, comes in a peer or, someone who they they've really connected with um, or, or they just get that time and space to have their own experience. Right. So there's just the, like being so active, like sometimes we just have to take a step back and kind of let things unfold and not try to exert so much control over a person's experience or our own experience. Like you don't have to manage every interaction. And I think that's something I've, that's played out in, at Camp Kita, but also plays out in everyday life. Yeah. It, it creating the absence and allowing others to step in. I mean, with this podcast, it's been growing, which is really cool. But recently I've hit a point to where I'm limiting it. I need to get other people on. I need to get a team. So yesterday I spent some time working on a team application and coming up with roles. And it's all people who would like to give their time. Right now it's not a large revenue generating organism, but at some point it could be. And there are people who want to be involved and people want more experience and they could build their portfolio, but it's so hard for me to give up that control. And I know that with conversation, it's funny that we think about it or that we don't think about it, but it's same thing. Like it's so hard for me sometimes to show up to a social event and not really, and just listen. And I know with that camp role, you, your job is to navigate and be there, be the trusty sidekick for people as they navigate really hard emotional stuff, yet also providing the opportunity for others to step in and fill that connection. That's tough. It is. Yeah. But it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's cool to be witness to some of the things. And I think that's how, um, how I've kind of shifted it. It's like, it's okay to be an, be an observer or to just notice what's happening. Um, and there's a lot of value in that as well. Yeah. We don't always have to be at the center of, of what's happening. Um, yeah. And it's changing that identity, right? Because you're going from, I'm the leader of this group. I'm the one who maintains and drives conversation to I'm the one who helps people, rise to the occasion so that they can break feelings of 
oh, I can't talk in this group or, oh, I'm not able to do this. I'm not able to do that. You can, and you switch that perspective. For me, I think about how you said over-identifying with something. I hadn't even thought about the process of over-identification, but that makes so much sense because we can get ourselves locked into something. For me, for this past year, my narrative has been, oh, I was in this job that was this fancy job and I quit because I was traveling so much and then I had some family crises show up and since then, in the process, I've been able to do a podcast in a production company and play this and work on that. And I've told people that story over and over and over. And just thinking about how you said over-identification makes me wonder, hmm, I wonder what would happen if instead of thinking about all of that, I said, yeah, so I'm currently building an independent media studio and I produce podcasts and I create content that helps connect others and boom, that's it, you know? And that process, because it's true, I'm not lying, you know? But then that whole long story, I'm not lying with that either. So deciding what to pick and what you're identifying with, I'm like thinking of that in the moment right now. Yeah, you. That no, that's that's cool. I mean, it's it can be hard to set down the things that um, are part of our truth. Yes, and it's not. And you know, back to your museum example, it's not that they're not there. It's not that they're not part of our truth. It's not that we're being dishonest. It's that we're choosing. Um how to present ourselves and we get to make that choice. And I think that's empowering. I think it should be empowering. Um, it's one of the things actually about summer camp that I think, um, I didn't go to summer camp as a kid, but you know, I've gotten to go to camp Kita the past several years and people show up at summer camp and it's like you, you're out of your normal context. You're out mm-hmm. of your, um, your school, your sports, whatever. And you're meeting entirely new people. And that is an opportunity on a small scale to change how you relate to people, to, to think about your own narrative, um, to try new things, like to uncover new interests. And so it's like, there's a lot that can be learned from a a week at summer camp. And it's, it's really interesting too, just to be an observer of kids as they go through that experience and adults are no different. You come in with a certain expectation or uh, a set of fears or concerns and, you buy into it or, you know, just because you're in a place that's different, you, you, you get to transform and you get to try on different, different identities or try on different activities and just be a, you know, a different version of yourself, which is okay. And then you go back into your, you know, kind of typical context and environment, uh, your, your family and you, you can choose kind of how, you know, do you, do you keep some of the things that you learned about yourself, you know, or did you learn that you didn't like that or, um, and, and then you evolve. And I think that's a really healthy process for mm-hmm. all, for all of us to, um, all of us to engage in. And there's nothing wrong with identity, like strongly identifying with things. I don't want that to be, um, conveyed. Um, and you get, you get the, the opportunity to choose. There's nothing wrong with having a strong identity, having a leading primary identity. Whenever people make podcasts, I tell people, you have to have a primary identity. What are you going to be talking to your audience from? 
you could be a police officer, but also someone who works out a lot. Are you talking to him as a fitness nut or as a cop? And you can have several identities, but pick a primary. And I think that similar to life, we can have our big identities, but we're not bound to them. That's so encouraging. We're not bound to them. It, regarding questions and reflections and knowing when to ask a question and knowing when to reflect on a value or a feeling. I know you mentioned three to one. Mm. Is that something that you use uh, throughout your work? Um, when we're teaching about skills, we use words like formulas. Um, but it's not that we want people to be formulaic. Um, the reason we call them formulas and the reason we teach the way we do is so that when someone calls in in crisis, you know, your cortisol levels rise and your anxieties up as the counselor. And so um, when you practice things in a, in a formulaic way, you form habits that then serve you in a crisis moment when it's harder to access, you know, the executive function functioning part of your brain, you've got things that are, you know, you've laid some, some solid foundation for, um, for the work that you're going to, and then when, when, you know, your anxiety levels out, um, you can engage in a more, you know, in a way that feels authentic and, and feels like you're connecting with the person. That's a really good point because in the crisis, we will revert back to what we know the best. Yep. So if we can drill down these ideas, then we're going to navigate our crisis better. Yeah. And in certain settings, like, you know, when, when someone reaches out to me, you know, when I'm at home, um, or if someone in my life is struggling, it's the, my first response is probably my more authentic res- like, or more natural response, I should say, which is like, holy shit, you know, what do I do? You know, this is really scary. Um, whereas if I'm in a professional setting where it's like, you know, this is, then it's easier to access those skills. Mm-hmm. And so like even people who learn these skills or, um, you know, feel really comfortable and confident. Like it's still, it's still scary. It's still someone you care about. And it's like, you can't take that away from the, the situation. You just have to try to notice when, when you're doing it and then recalibrate to the person. Yeah. That's a really good point because I will ask therapists, whenever you're talking to your wife, are you thinking like this or talking to a friend? And most of the time it's not. No. Yeah. I'm turning it off. Yeah. Because if I, if I talk to my wife, you know, how I would talk to someone who's in crisis, we would have, you know, bigger problems because yeah, that just, it doesn't work that, that way. You know, you, you can use, you can incorporate some of the skills to be a better listener, right? We can all be better listeners. Um, and, you know, I, my wife's a social worker, so, you know, So if you both did it. We, we know the tricks, so you got to be. You'd be spinning in circles if you both did it. Right. With the arc of a conversation, tell me about that. I, I, I don't know. I kind of think all interactions or conversations might have an arc. There's all these like storytelling elements that I feel like are kind of weaved into our conversation today. Um, and I, I don't know a lot about storytelling, but um, in a, in a crisis contact, you're going to see kind of a typical arc, like, and people can't stay at that heightened level of anxiety forever. Generally speaking, like it has to come down and just the process of 
talking, of hearing someone's voice that's calm, that the tone, you know, is, is comforting. The things that they're saying are empathetic. Like we're going to see, you know, a person's, um, we're going to see kind of that spike and then we're going to see it taper off ideally as, as they engage. And that's a really cool thing to, to witness too. And it, and it, you know, as you're clicking along as the counselor, you want to be able to, to check in with that, you know, and to get feedback from the person they're giving you feedback that you're taking in, you know, through their tone of voice, through their, um, you know, statements, maybe the, the quality or content of their thoughts change. You know, if, if someone calls in feeling really anxious and everything is, um, you know, the world is falling in, I'm the worst person in the world, like all these negative thoughts. And you see the quality or the content of those thoughts change. You can notice that you can point that out to a person, you know, earlier when you called, you said you were feeling really anxious and you talked about how you felt like you were worthless. And I've just heard you talk about, um, you know, your work and how important it is to you and everything that's, um, everything that you feel proud about. And I just want to note it, note that difference. That's cool. Yeah, it is really cool. It's cool when people do that for you because we, we aren't always the best at noticing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we're just, you know, going through our process. So being a mirror to someone, being a sounding board to someone, um, helps, helps them see themselves as you're noticing them or as uh, you can just objectively lay out, like, this is what I'm seeing do with it what you will. And that's, that's helpful. Like we need people to reflect back to us. And I think that's how we form our ideas about ourselves. Like it's how I form the idea that I'm a resilient person or how I began to identify with that term. It's because someone told me I didn't come up with it on my own. Someone said, Oh, you're really resilient. I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. I am. Yeah. That's me. (laughs) Right. I guess I am resilient. Mm -hmm. They're like, you're really funny. And you're like, yes, yes, I am. Thank (laughs) you. And then we try and be the and funny it's, guy. Yeah, it's on my 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 profile, my Facebook profile. <laughs> yeah, funny, resilient. The cool thing about what like this conversation is, people may hear it and be like, "Okay, that's good for a therapist," or "That's good for someone working in suicide prevention." But what I love is every single conversation that we have. There's this process of meaning making. There's this process of a sender and a receiver. There's this process of there's noise in between and we're both bringing something to the each side of the table and we each have our own stories and we're actually also revising our stories, but we're also sharing our stories. So this mezclad, this mixture of all of this stuff happening, the more that we think about the technicalities, I think the more helpful it is for people to actually connect. So like you said with the formulas, right? The three to one or a reflection value or value reflection or a feeling reflection or reminding people of how far they've come. These concepts are so helpful for people to know because whenever you're talking to a friend and they're feeling down about their job, you can continue talking to them and you can look at the arc of the conversation or when you're in a conflict with your wife, I know this with my um, relationship, I can be really upset, but then 30 minutes later, I feel better. So that arc Mm -hmm. right and knowing conflicts will have an arc there's going to be some moments where it seems completely crazy and i can't believe you said that or i can't believe you did that 
but then it's going, it's not going to last forever. So like telling yourself that is so helpful. Yeah. The, the feelings are going to, you know, wax and wane and, um, how you relate to a conflict or an event is going to change. Um, you know, how, again, from a loss perspective, how you relate to a loss is going to evolve over time. Um, the, the feelings might be the same or similar, but, um, they might come up in new in different contexts. You know, the feeling sad about a loss. Um, you know, for me, it's like thoughts of becoming a father. You know, when, when I became a father just two and a half years ago, it was a strange experience and one that kind of like, you know, brought up new, new feelings that I hadn't considered, not new feelings. I mean, new thoughts, you know, the feelings were the same, you know, feeling scared or feeling abandoned. Right. And then now I'm confronted with this new identity as a father and, and a new person to relate to. And it's like, what does that mean for my relationship with my dad? And it's like, you know, big old mess, but you know, one that I, uh, I couldn't have anticipated what would have come up. I did know that I was feeling apprehensive about it coming up at all, you know, becoming a dad. Um, so I don't know. That's just, it feels like an example of, um, just relating to events differently over time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, things not being forever. I have two questions that I ask every guest. Okay. Okay. First one is if you could write a book, what would you write about and why? Mm, if I could write a book, I think it'd be about connections. I don't know what form that would take, but like noticing connections is um, something I do, whether it's in interactions or whether it's like out walking around outside. It's like, connection is something that that keeps me keeps me grounded whatever the book would be it would result in the reader feeling more connected hopefully and then second question being if there were a billboard that was going to be seen by millions of people what would you have it say Oof, that's a tough one um i i mean the the suicide prevention part of me would would want i don't know it's like, do you, do you go something funny that brings people joy? Right, while they're driving. Yeah. Or or do you go with something that's, you know, meaningful? Um, maybe, it, maybe it'd say um, connection. That's boring, but that's all. <laughs> it just says connection. Connection. Get connected. <laughs> Get connected, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, smell, smell, the, smell the roses. I don't know. Yeah, we can workshop the billboard. Yeah, we've got time. Yeah, we've got time. Or it could say call, you know, call 988. There's a lack of uh of billboards. Those up. billboards. Yeah. 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 I, I am hopeful that um we haven't t touched on that much, but you know, part of my work is getting the word out there about 988. Um, hey, let's boost them. Yeah, so people should should reach out to 988 if they're concerned about themselves or a loved one. And it connects to us um, if you're in Kansas and um, it's, it's a resource for people. So yeah, I'd that, that, that's the better answer is, you know, connect to 988. 
and you're still dealing with connection in 988. So there we I go. think it's like best of both worlds. So let's pretend like someone hasn't been listening to the podcast at all. Mm. What is 988? 988 is the new three-digit dialing code for the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. And so it's a network of over 200 independent contact centers uh, that have a staff uh, or volunteers who are trained to answer and provide support over calls, chats, and texts. And so it's available nationwide uh, in the United States and has been live for about a year. So it's an exciting opportunity to kind of redesign and reimagine what crisis care looks like. And it's starting with this new three-digit number, which is intended to be more accessible. Um, but it'll it'll become a, a system of care that connects people to um, you know, some in-person supports, things like mobile crisis teams that can come to you when you're struggling or crisis facilities, places you can go if you're struggling and need a safe place to be. So hopefully in Kansas, we'll get to a place where all these things are connected and um, supporting people in crisis. And then, you know, ideally moving people beyond crisis and getting to a place of stability or recovery. Um, I think that's yeah, we're, we're not just in the business of trying to put out fires, but trying to get people to a place of recovery. To where they thrive. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to get there and uh, people need support to do it. So beautiful, my man. Well, thank you for being here. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. It's a blast. If you are ever in need, 988, you can listen to what Jared just said again, a beautiful resource. I'm really grateful for what you're doing for the city and also for the state. And I hope that people are encouraged to know um, we have a big difference that we can make in every conversation. And we also aren't bound to our narrative. Okay. All right, folks. We'll see you next time. Take care.